You're listening to the Discriminology Podcast, the podcast that arms you with the knowledge and the tools to dismantle discrimination. With me, one of your hosts, Malik Silao. Hey everybody, what's going on? Welcome back to Discriminology, episode nine, titled Say Her Name. Uh, this is Sid, one of your co-hosts. I'm joined by, of course, my other co-hosts, um, Malik, Sandra, and Mr. Kramer. So um, today we're gonna be talking about uh, the Brianna Taylor case. Brianna Taylor was a 26-year-old ER technician um, that was killed by the LMPD back in March of this year in the execution of a no-knock search warrant. And I'm sure that you all listening, everyone knows um, about her death. Uh, her death sparked outrage across the country, um, it sparked demonstrations. Tonight we'll be explaining the overview of the case details after the recent um, grand jury a decision came out earlier this week, and we'll be talking about the complexities behind this entire case and um, what we think, what we all think justice looks like um, for Brianna. On March 13, 2020, at 12.40 a.m., the LMPD officers Jonathan Mattingly, Brett Hankinson, and Miles Cosgrove executed a no-knock search warrant. Um, there is some ambiguity around whether or not they did knock, and there's also ambiguity around if they identified themselves as law enforcement. According to Kenneth Walker, Brianna Taylor's boyfriend, he heard something banging on the door, but never heard anyone announce themselves as police. Neighbors also um, confirmed that they didn't hear police ever announce themselves. Kenneth Walker fired a gun at who he believed to be intruders, and in turn, the officers returned fired um, to the effect of 20 shots. Officer Madeline was hit in the leg, and Brianna was shot five times, according to her death certificate. Um, also, according to her autopsy, the manner of her death was determined as a homicide. So I think that's something important to note. She was briefly alive after she was shot by police, but she never received medical attention, according to dispatch logs. The officers were investigating two men they believed were selling narcotics at a, from a drug house 10 miles away. Her address was, however, included because she dated one of the suspects two years prior to her death. No drugs were found in her apartment. The Taylor family was awarded a settlement of $12 million. That being said, it was a civil settlement, so the city does not admit any wrongdoing in her actual death. This also prevents the Taylor family from ever suing the city again. Officer Hankinson was fired and indicted by a grand jury on three counts of wanton endangerment for the bullets that entered the neighboring apartment. None of the charges are related to the death of Breonna Taylor. So that's a quick overview of the case. What are we thinking so far? The first thing that I'm thinking, and I'm taking it back to when she um, was killed back in March, um, was this whole notion of like the no-knock search warrant. Um, I am unfamiliar with um, how long or it, like how how much of how common of a practice this is in the, in um, law enforcement to, to conduct no-knock search warrants. But it kind of made me think like, okay, so if the if they were conducting a no-knock search warrant because of the nature of what they were searching for, uh, nature of the you know of the of, of the case, by law, they still have to identify themselves as police. I could be wrong, but I think that by law they still have to identify themselves as police. And so I am I'm curious to know whether or not the testimony of the neighbors um, or and or Brianna Taylor's boyfriend about not hearing them identify themselves as police uh, if that had any effect on this decision that was made um, in court or if that was presented, if that was, you know, like 
uh, sufficient evidence or not? So I did, I did, um, I, I did do a lot of reading about this, uh, about the ideas of the self-defense laws that, that that particular um, district has and state has. And the self-defense laws actually protect not just you and your home, but they protect officers when they're executing these kinds of warrants. So legally, it, it's very ambiguous and, and certainly favors the police in these kinds of situations. Now, as, as far as the shots going in and the clear line of sight, so that's something that, that you know, Malik didn't mention there, that that was completely against police protocol. And that's, that's why those charges were brought, that they fired shots through closed blinds. They, they had no target. They were just firing blindly. And um, that's really where the charges really should have come from. Um, but, but they didn't. And as we were reading today, they, the attorney general uh, chose not to present those charges to the grand jury, even though kind of said he did. And then he walked it back today, you know, so yes, he lied and said that he did. And then he didn't present those. So it's, it, it's such a legally ambiguous case. You know, where, where do you, where do you actually look for justice here? You know, the, the civil case was, was, was quite lucrative for the family. You know, is that justice getting money for the death? You know, I, I can't imagine that that would ever satisfy my soul if, if my daughter was, was killed, you know, there's really no amount of money that would bring justice. So, you know, this, this idea that we're talking about what, what is justice here? I think the question goes certainly a lot deeper and, and goes into these, these very ambiguous protections for the police when they're executing these kinds of warrants. They're, they're having challenges because they can't determine who is the aggressor um, in this situation. Most states don't allow the quote-unquote aggressor to claim self-defense, but it's confusing, right? Because is, is Kenneth Walker the aggressor because he fired the first shot? Well, someone broke into his house and he didn't know that they were police. So it's almost caused a self-defense stalemate in, uh, in the courtrooms, which is why I think they're having such a hard time placing charges that most people would, would deem appropriate, such as manslaughter or, or charges related to her actual death. So, I, so yeah, so wouldn't, that's what, that's what I was saying before, like, so wouldn't, isn't them having to identify themselves as officers, isn't that some form of protection when executing these warrants? Because that, that is the notice that it's law enforcement and not an intruder. How the laws are currently set up, which is why it's, it's under a lot of scrutiny and fire at the moment. When you're executing a no-knock warrant, you're not required to announce if providing notice would be dangerous for the officers or likely result in the destruction of evidence. For obvious reasons, that leaves legal loopholes and, and, and places for ambiguity as, as far as the suspects involved in the warrant. How it's currently stated right now, they're not, they're not required to identify themselves. I feel like that just causes more problems because like you were just saying, it just leaves legal loopholes. And then obviously situations like this, because you hear someone breaking into your house or you think breaking in, but really it's a no knock warrant. Some states are looking to get rid of this. And do you think that'll actually go through? I think nationwide it's under fire, especially in states like Kentucky. There's 28 other states that also follow the same legal doctrine. So in these states, they have stay your ground laws, 
but they also have castle doctrine. Under these laws, Kenneth Walker was not legally obligated to retreat in any fashion because of um, castle doctrine. According to staying your ground laws, neither were the officers, and they're also protected by other legalities because of because of their role. It's also important to note that there's no tailor fit law to police, and they have a unique right where they can initiate violence and still claim self defense. So my conclusion with this is that between castle doctrine and stand your ground and self defense, it doesn't seem that they can coexist properly without there being gaps. So I think that that is why it would have been so important to present all this information to a grand jury. That's really what a grand jury's job is to do, is to sort through what happened and decide whether there's enough evidence to go to trial or not. And, you know, Malik was saying, was saying earlier, and, and we heard in the last episode that, you know, I'd rather be tried by 12, but that's something that doesn't happen very often because these things never get through the grand jury. They never get to trial. It, it was absolute negligence by the, by the prosecuting, by the attorney general, not to present this information and let our jury system figure it out. That's why we have a jury system, especially when laws are ambig- ambiguous like that. Juries are supposed to be the ones to sort out what happened that night. Now, they would have had a expert testimony. They would have had police talking about what it was it like to be in a firefight. What is your experience when you're in a when when you're in a situation like that? What's normal procedures? And but no mo, no jury was able to even listen to that. So I it it again it's it's an incredible example example of abuse and it's an incredible example of of the justice system heavily tilted away from the black community. And you know and, until laws change, there are not going to there's not going to be justice. You know until laws change, there's not going to be equality under the law. In, in these states that continue to protect them. I think it's also worth mentioning, too. Um, I read that a judge by the name of Andrew Napolitano, he stated that he would also have indicted all three of the officers. It's, it's, I think we're losing track of the fact that only one officer was indicted. They weren't indicted on Brianna's death, but specifically they were charged for the shots that went into the neighboring apartment because they endangered the neighbors. So it's it's insane how there's just an, an utter disregard for this woman's life other than the civil settlement. I think something that would be good to talk about is why were they there to begin with? You know, what, what was the purpose of, of this raid? What, what were they were looking for? You know, they, they were looking for narcotics. They were looking for drugs. Um, they had already had a suspect in custody before they executed this warrant. So what was the purpose of going to this house? And, and that's really when I, when, when I think about systemic change and I think about what can we do to improve policing and what can we do to avoid these situations, looking at a situation like this, what, what, what would have been the positive outcome anyway? What, what would have been accomplished by finding a small package of, of narcotics in this house? What, what were they going to do? And why is that something that we're spending so much money on going after these low-level drug dealers. We've been fighting this war on drugs for, you know, 50 years now they've declared the war on drugs. They're obviously losing. So what are the tactics that they're using to fight this war on drugs? It's, it's not sustainable. It, it, it only leads to incarceration. It only leads to more violence. It's, it's prohibition on, 
on low level drugs, the same way prohibition was on alcohol and that, you know, that the alcohol disrupted a different population. So they got rid of that in the constitution. It's, it's unbelievable. They changed the constitution twice for this, for, for alcohol, you know, because a certain group of people enjoy their alcohol. But when we're talking about narcotics, the way that they're scheduled and really, you know, I mean, yes, dangerous stuff, but the, the laws are, ha, have to be changed if they want to fight this war on drugs. They have to go about it differently. And that, I think, is something that maybe, you know, you could get justice. Maybe you can get equality. Maybe you can find some sort of, some sort of silver lining from all of this tragedy. And it's a lot of tragedy. And, you know, the state doesn't seem to really be invested in fixing the problem. The state seems to be more invested in fighting the problem and waging this war. You know, it's almost like we're in, we're in Iraq again. You know, we're just making money by being over there. They're just making money by incarcerating people and killing people. It's, it's, it's not working. It's been going on for 50 years and it's not working. It definitely makes you question the sincerity of the war on drugs being about eliminating drugs. As you said, it's not working, and, and that's not an opinionated statement. There's plenty of studies that cite that it's not working. Um, I pulled up a study called the Pew Charitable Trust, and they examined data that was available in 2014 from the federal and state level law enforcement, from correction facilities all the way down to health agencies. Their analysis found no statistical significance between the state level drug imprisonment rates and reduced state level drug problems. And I know that's a little ambiguous as, as far as st- saying reduce state-level drug problems, but the KPIs for that were self-reported use, drug overdoses, and drug arrests. So it's not working. And to parallel a, a clear example of that, the state of New Jersey is ranked 45th in drug imprisonment levels, while the state of Tennessee is ranked number five. If this was effective, I would imagine that Tennessee wouldn't have much of a drug issue based on their incarceration levels. Well, New Jersey is ranked 42nd in drug usage levels, and Tennessee is ranked number 40. So, I mean, I, I could pull up some more tables and data, but I think that's a, a clear indication that this is not effective. So, from that standpoint, us as voters calling our, our legislators need to begin to explore what are alternative methods to, to solving this drug issue, because it's not, it's not strict laws. It's not imprisonment. And I don't think it's low-level drug busts, as, as this case um, is a great example of that. Because even, let's say this went well, and the people in there were the, the drug dealers they were looking for, and they made the arrest. Okay, great. Now, those low-level drug dealers will probably be replaced overnight. And that, that's usually what happens. It's just a farm. So it's not like we're going after the top-level people. We're going after people on the street. So it, it's almost like we're spinning our wheels and from that standpoint alone, that's a waste of time, money, and effort. And to compound that all, someone lost their life over it. So I, th- I think we have to explore changes. So I, I, think, I think the big comparison that, that, that is obvious and staring in everybody's face and you know, has certainly been talked about is the opioid crisis, right? You know, they're starting to treat the opioid crisis as an addiction. You know, these people are not being arrested. They're being sent to rehabilitation. You know, why is that? Well, because the opioid crisis has hit the white population. That's why. You know, it's, it's very obvious. All of a sudden, you have people addicted to the Oxycontins and, and all these things. Those people get to go to rehab, while people who are doing, doing cocaine or crack or, or heroin, they're incarcerated, and they're not getting the treatment that they need. 
And until they treat the drug problem as an addiction, we're never going to see the drug usage go down. We're never going to see the dangerous drug level, you know, drug usage go down. But this has been, this has been a state level, federal level policy since the Nixon administration. So if you, if you bear with me for a second, I just want to read, I just want to read a, a, a quick quote here. This is from Nixon's domestic policy chief, John Ehrlichman. Now this thing's been going around for a long time, but the, those of those, who are in the no-no, but I really feel it's important to say it. So Nixon's domestic chief policy, uh, domestic policy chief, John Ehrlichman, explained that the Nixon campaign had two enemies. Now we, we know we're coming, out of, we're coming out of the 60s here, right? The anti-war left and black people. This is from the domestic policy chief. This Nixon named these two groups as their enemies. These are enemies of the Nixon campaign. He said, we knew we couldn't make it illegal to be either against the war or black, but by getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and blacks with heroin, and then criminalizing both heavily, we could disrupt those communities. We could arrest their leaders, raid their homes, break up their meetings, and vilify them night after night on the evening news. This is one of Nixon's top policymakers, and this is what he said on tape. This is not made up. This is on tape. He said it in an interview, and this has been the policy at the federal level since the early 1970s. So it started off as Nixon's war on drug, where drugs where it was heroin, because that was that's what was being used in the black community, and hippies were using marijuana. So marijuana got the, got. Um, scheduled as a level one drug, as, as dangerous as heroin, as dangerous as, as any of the, the strongest opioids, because he was going after political enemies. That continued through the Reagan years and the war on drug when crack became the issue, right? And, you know, just a little callback to what we talked about in our, le- in our uh, podcast with Sandeep, the level of, of charge and the level of jail time for powder cocaine, which is a white drug, and crack cocaine, which is a black drug, according to our, our state, was the 100 to 1. You got 100, more, 100 times more punishment than, you know, than somebody who was uh, just doing powder cocaine. So my point is, is that this has been policy. This has been federal policy. And that's what has to change. And that's what we have to start getting people to admit, to, to say this policy started as an anti-black policy. And it, and it finally needs to be looked at. That's the only way we're ever going to get justice, ever get equal protection under the law, is if they admit where these policies actually came from. Yeah, I agree, Mr. Kramer. That's, that's to answer Malik's question that he brought up before about, you know, how do we, you know, address these things kind of going forward? Like, how do we see a change happen? And I completely agree that it is recognizing acknowledging and, and identifying the racism behind these policies and how they've come about and how they've been put to practice for decades as we've seen now and how this case in particular and, and the reason why it's so tragic is that right like honestly what what I we what is justice in this case like there, you know there's so many there were so many things that went wrong there's so many factors there's so much confusion and, and vagueness about the events that occurred and it's like you know it's like how do you where do you start? But I agree that that is, that is a really good start. And it's, it's, it's identifying the, the racism behind these policies. As far as acquiring justice, as you said, where do we start? Because Kramer referenced some specific policies, but 
a lot of these systems and laws and what's in charge of us, there's so much inherent racism built in from the very start. I'm, I'm not speaking to whether or not uh, the defund movements or the abolition movements are, are the solution, but citing all this, this data, you can't, you can't completely dispel them as being completely irrational when you really look at all the laws. If, if there's laws that were designed to oppress the Black community, as, as Mr. Kramer said, how do you reform that? It's, it's not a matter of, oh, we need to reform it because it's not doing its job. It's doing exactly what it was designed to do. A lot of these systems are functioning as they were designed to function. So it, it kind of perplexes me when we talk about reform. How do you begin to reform that? Something I've learned um, in my journey becoming a lawyer and working for an attorney um, is that, you know, people have to remember kind of that, you know, we talk about this system, these systems as kind of like a um, like an outside thing that we're looking in on. But people have to remember that these laws and these policies and these things are created by humans, that they're, they're created by people. And so that that's really important to, to remember because people kind of look at like the laws, like, you know, this like robot somewhere made these laws and then we all just follow them. But like, you know, no, they're made by people and the laws are created by people to, and, and are created by people who have these beliefs and have these views. And so when you really take a real like bird's eye view of it and you take a step back and you realize, okay, so yeah, like if someone who has these racist, you know what I'm saying? These racist views, these racist beliefs is now put in a position of power to regulate a city, a state, what have you, it's gonna reflect that. And so, and when you then go back to the history and the decades prior and how these, um, how these policies have evolved and how they've kind of been maintained and carried out, decade to decade, it starts to kind of piece, put the pieces together that, again, none of this is coincidence. These laws are created by people who have these beliefs and these things are maintained because they are now laws. And so we're going back to our previous um, episodes and also in light of what's happening in the, in the world right now with voting and everything, this is why it's so important. It's so important for people to not only vote, but to also look at their local, you know, their local governments, because these are people that you're putting in the positions of power. And it's, you're putting, you're giving these people, these humans, this power to make the change. And so it is so crucially important that you put the right people in those positions. So vote. Daniel Cameron is elected position. Um, I just want to throw that in there. I'm happy you brought that up. He was elected to represent. And I think you also brought up a good point regarding how we view the laws. I feel like a, a lot of rebuttals for what's going on is, is based on how the laws are currently constructed. Oh, well, this is what we should do because this is what's legal and what's not legal. Legality is not always synonymous with morality and what's the right thing to do. At a time, slavery was legal. At a time, it was legal to prevent women from voting. There's, there's a lot of bad things that were legal. So it's not necessarily a valid argument to deem how we should move forward. I think it requires more insight and a deeper dive into to how these laws are constructed, as you were saying. And, and looking at them as not this almighty entity, but looking at them as a, as a human construct. And I think another, another real tragic thing about Breonna Taylor's case and, and why this was such, such a heartbreaking situation is that, as Mr. Kramer um, alluded to earlier, there was so much ambiguity and so much um, almost confusion behind this particular case that it almost warranted the the attorneys and everyone involved to be that much more diligent and that much more uh, aware and putting that much more work to make sure that this was 
uh, that, the, that all of the evidence was um, you know, presented and that everything was fleshed out thoroughly and everything was presented thoroughly. And so, again, putting these people in positions of power, like this is, it's really important to note these things. Like this is something that we can't, this, this case should have been, should have been, in my opinion, um, kind of that precedent maybe, or maybe that kind of been, should have been that, um, that standout moment to, to, to initiate this change. Like this case in particular should have been. Yeah, absolutely. There has been an update in the case. So apparently one of the grand jurors has motioned for the grand jury information to be publicly released. So according to the motion, it is the fear of the petitioner that the attorney general, Cameron, would attempt to utilize the court's contempt powers under 5.24. If there was a public disclosure that contradicted certain things that he stated happened during the proceedings, characterized the singularity of the decision in a different light or raised doubts about the charges that were presented during the proceedings. So basically what that means is that juror is not in alignment with how Mr. Cameron presented his findings and, and the details of the case. So, you know, everything on Twitter, the, the, the very famous uh, lawyer now, uh, Ben Crump, who's been leading the charge here, um, just tweeted out that the attorney general walked back his statement and alluded to the fact that he was not completely forthcoming, I guess, is, is the way uh, is the way. But he, he lied when he said that they had a discussion with the jury. They never had the discussion with the jury about bringing charges against the other officers. The jury was never given that opportunity. And the, the, this is the grand jury. The grand jury was never given that opportunity to even discuss what happened because the prosecutor never gave them that opportunity to do that. And when he went public with that, when he said it, he said the jury was in agreement with us, which is impossible because they never had the discussion. So that's what this, this one juror is coming forward. And this is all breaking, you know, 40 minutes before we started taping tonight. So I'm sure a lot more is going to come out um, after we're done. It'll be interesting to see if any jurors, any other jurors uh, come out and say, you know, back this one juror up, which is always very important. But, but that goes back to what we were talking about before. If, if you can't get through a grand jury, if you can't even get to the point where a prosecutor is going to present information to a grand jury, then you're never going to get justice. You're never going to get to trial. And you're never going to allow the court system to operate the way it's supposed to operate. But we've seen a lot of that in the last four years. We've seen a lot of breakdown in the systems. We've seen a lot of abuse of powers from the executive all, all over the country, not just from the top, but executives all over the country wielding executive power and really making courts almost obsolete and and it's it's been very very ugly and it's 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 really we're really hitting a constitutional crisis here in many areas because the courts were not really being allowed to operate the way they were they were meant to be operate operated and that is we we the voters we the people are supposed to be the final say in what goes on in those courts and we the people have not been allowed to have that voice in those courts so we're, we are facing constitutional crisis everywhere which back to sid's point man get out and vote seriously get out there find out who these people are if you see somebody on there who all they can possibly say is i back the blue i back police well what about justice do you stand for justice do you stand for equal protection under the law do you stand for the 14th amendment you stand for the Fifth Amendment. You stand for any of these things that are that are that are so so sacred in our Constitution, and they don't. They don't. They they stand for law and order. Law and order. Well, that's 
that's that's a sad state of affairs. So this is this is crucial. Thirty days, it's crucial. It's almost a little disheartening to see how much abuse of power that that's transpired recently. I did want to talk about some policy reforms because we we were kind of debating back and forth where to start. Obviously, in in theory, it would be great to start at the root of these systems, but a reasonable starting place would be specific laws and practices that could prevent situations like this. What immediately comes to my mind is body cameras, because if we had access to those videos, there would be, as Sid said before, a lot less ambiguity regarding what happened. And just general oversight of the police department. I'm not as familiar with how the the Louisville Police Department oversees misconduct, but I do know in New York that there is an entity that oversees, especially the, the body cam footage called the CCRB. And it's problematic because in theory, they are supposed to be the overseer of the police force, but that's not actually what transpires. The police often don't disclose the tapes or they cut out certain aspects of the case. It's not like when I think of a, an overseer, I would think of someone that has complete authority of the situation. And that's not what we have in place today. So obviously, there's some conflict of interest if the party that's being investigated has a say or power within the investigation itself. I, I think that's elementary. Mr. Kramer alluded to before about all, like, all of these like, protections under the law that favor and tilt and, 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 and um, are tilted towards the police. And like Malik just said, like, you know, this, this um, argument about the body cameras and how that's just simple. It seems like such a simple, one simple fix, but it's like, there's just so, there's so many, there's so many like ambiguous things that and ambiguous and, and loopholes in these laws that favor the police and favor law enforcement that make it so difficult for justice to be served, especially, especially in cases like Breonna Taylor's. Right, like body cam footage, like that to me should be a, is a no-brainer, but somehow, some way, like these things are not accessible. I'm not even sure how you rationalize that. Um, I mean, we've referenced this in earlier episodes, but Mr. Kramer was my teacher growing up. So imagine back in school, for whatever reason, I got into a fight and that particular room had cameras. Imagine now if I had a say in how the camera footage is presented to the principal Imagine if I had the power to edit that video, leave certain things out, or omit the video altogether. It just, it's just not logical to me. If the principal is looking into a fight, I have no say. I would just have to give my side of the story, and they would oversee the entire thing. So I, I, don't, I just don't understand the logic behind it. Well, as, as, as Sid was saying before, that you, know, you can have all the laws that you want, but these are still people that are implementing these laws. And if you have the wrong people implementing the laws, it doesn't really matter what the law is. And in, in these cases, they have body cam laws, but the people implementing their laws are saying, implementing these laws are saying that there's certain footage we can't show because we're not protecting the rights of the person we were arresting because it shows their face. I mean, what kind of bizarre logic is that? But people buy it, you know, like, oh yeah, you got to protect his face. It goes back. We, we used to have, a system in place. We used to have it. We used to have a federal government that would investigate these state crimes. It used to happen. And the reason that we made so much progress in the 1960s is because the federal government was committed to investigating these. The Department of Justice and the FBI would go into the states and investigate these local police precincts and root out the, these, this racism. And that seems to be completely gone. And Certainly with this current administration, it's, non, it's non-existent. 
the current Department of Justice is just an arm of the president at this point doing his bidding. So they will never investigate or get involved. The, the Attorney General of the United States is supposed to get involved in these situations. And they have completely absconded of their constitutional duties under this current administration. So our government does do the will of the people. You know, the will of the people put these current people in the White House. So they are doing their bidding. They are doing the Charlottesville bidding. They're doing the bidding of these people that put them there. So where do you start? You know, there's lots of places to start, and we could look at laws and changing laws, but you have to start with people who represent justice and people who represent equality. That's where you start. It's why we made so much progress in the 1960s, and it's why we made so much progress in the 90s, even, even though the Clintons are, are terribly, terribly flawed, and, and they, they have obviously tremendous amounts of problems. They, they, at least on the surface, on paper, were on the side of equality. I mean, they had awful statements, obviously, but, you know, when Lyndon Johnson was there, the Department of Justice and the FBI's main job was to push the civil rights legislation into the states and make sure that those states were complying with all of those laws. And that's gone. We don't have that arm anymore. And, uh, you know, it's something that's very, it's, it's something that is crucial to the Constitution working. And uh, it's not working. We're, we are absolutely at a crisis at this point. We are. But I will say that, be, that being said, we're also in another time of social justice. The, the social justice awareness, to me, is as aware or maybe more than the 1960s were. People are more aware now of what's going on. And the movement has started. And there have been small gains here and there. But the movement has started. And if things can turn in November, I think we'll see an accelerated uh, social justice reform, more, more obviously more than could possibly be imagined under this current administration. I guess try to uh, identify or try to point out a, a silver lining or a positive maybe even in all of this, um, which I think didn't just start with Breonna Taylor's uh, death, but, but definitely started with this administration that we're, that is currently in office. Um, the, how I think people are starting to see, um, whereas they maybe weren't before this current administration, starting to really see the effects um, of an election whether it be local, state, federal, what have you, are starting to see the effects of voting and of not voting and of who you vote for and who you put in these positions. I think that the, the general public, um, I would hope, is, is really feeling and seeing the effects of that and, and feeling how, how crucial these moments are. Um, because I mean, I can't speak for Breonna Taylor's family, but I would like to think that um, that would be, I guess, a start with getting some justice. At least, at least they can see that people, this, what these events that have happened, hers included, Granatello's included, um, have really woke people up and sparked people to, you know, yeah, to exercise their civic duty and to and to really make the change. And, you know, just to be fair, um, within the state of Kentucky, amidst Brianna Taylor's death, there has been some legislative proposals. Um, I'll, I'll just read a few of them. Senator Rand Paul also proposed the Justice for Breonna Taylor Act, which would essentially require law enforcement to announce themselves and identify themselves before they execute a search warrant. There's also national challenges regarding if we're going to go forward with no-knock search warrants. I mean, I think to start, that would be a great place to eliminate that because there's obvious, we were kind of circling back to what we were talking about before, but there's obvious loopholes regarding 
the efficacy of a no-knock safe warrant in regards to the safety of the suspect, I think we spend a lot of time, and, and rightfully so, because police officers engage in a dangerous job, and I have a lot of respect for them. But at the same time, suspects have civil rights too. Their safety matters too. And I think in a lot of these conversations, we lose sight of the fact that as much as the police were in, were in danger in that situation, obviously Kenneth Walker and Breonna Taylor were in danger too. They were in, I wouldn't even know what I would do if someone barged into my room in the middle of the night, didn't announce themselves as police. I, I can't tell you how I'd react to that. So I think that's a great place to start. I agree. Kind of like what, what Mr. Kramer was saying before, like, but what, yeah, what, what is the, what is the point? What are you getting out of it? What, what, do the do the pros outweigh the cons of maintaining these no-knock search warrants? Because, yeah, I would argue that they don't. Like, but that I would argue that that puts both both parties and in, in those cases in more danger. Like, you know, police should identify themselves. They're in a dangerous position ex- executing these warrants, and which in a lot of cases are are really really dangerous situations. And as Malik said, the suspects who are who have rights and who are also supposed to be under the law innocent until proven guilty or otherwise, um, have had the same rights to be, and is to be safe too, especially in their own homes. And so I agree, that is a great place to start because what is, what are we, we're seeing that obviously this is not working. This is a landmark case of no-knock search warrants not working. So I agree that that's a great place to start. I thought we covered a lot of topics um, throughout this conversation. I, I thought it was a, um, very insightful and I, I learned some things just by talking to you guys and, and kind of talking through some of the research we did. I think it's important that we wish the family of Brianna Taylor our condolences. It's tragic what happened to her, regardless of how you feel about the rulings or how the prosecution should carry forward. I think we can all align with the fact that we lost a human life and it's tragic that she died at 26 years old. My personal condolences go, go out to her family and that's extended through the rest of our, our cast. Thank you for joining us today, and we can look forward to our next episode being an extension of civics and and overall political literacy. I mean, we referenced um, how important it is to vote and be active and and make sure you know who's representing you at all levels of the government. That's really the only way I think we can tangibly um, achieve some some real change. Yeah, November 3rd is around the corner, y'all, so let's do it. Let's make it happen. Get out and vote, you youngsters, yeah. Thank you for listening to the Discriminology Podcast. Be sure to subscribe and to follow us on Instagram at Discriminology underscore podcast or on Facebook at Discriminology 3. Until next time, peace.